0: Welcome back to Whose Crime Is It Anyway? I'll be your host this week, Shell Morgan, and with me is my partner in true crime, the lovely Lisa Magistrelli. Hey guys. So I had something really interesting happen to me this week. Yeah. And I recently moved to a new neighborhood. I'm out of like the cute yoga, like, namaste village of <laughs> Vancouver. <laughs> and now I'm in more, like, cool Main Street East Van. And there's a few uh, interesting characters that hang around where I live. Not yeah. too many, mom and dad, if you're listening. You're fine. <laughs> I'm perfectly but, safe. But I'm walking from my car, and I can hear this guy... <laughs> riding behind me on his bike. And I just know that he's going to fucking say something to me. Yeah. Just had that feeling. And so he yells out as he's biking by me. And I, uh, at this point have my keys in between my fingers just in case he attacks me. I can. Oh yeah. Go for the jugular loaded, ready to go. Oh yeah. Like you're getting your eyes. Yeah. Come at me, bro. Oh yeah. I am always prepared. (laughs) If this podcast has taught me anything, it's just always be prepared. But he's biking by me, and he calls out, hey, sexy lady. And I'm just like, oh, my God. And then he says, I want to eat your bum bum. (laughs) (laughs) He, he like, pauses before saying bum bum. What, like he couldn't think of anything better to say? That's the best you got? (laughs) Yep. And like just for clarity, okay, perfect. Let's go. My bum wasn't even out. I was
1: wearing a sweater. Oh my- Gone. was like he hesitated. He, he like did. didn't know what to say. Like, super cool, dude. He was just like so in total lowlife on oh his bike, God. like riding
0: by. I wanna eat your bum bum. Hey, yeah. Ew. I mean, I feel like he probably felt bad about himself when he rode away. Oh yeah, he was probably so disappointed. I think he was probably embarrassed. Yeah, like I fucking blew that. Yeah. I re- like, what also? <laughs> okay, when I think about men catcalling women, what do you expect us to do? Like, right? do you want us to be like, yeah, fucking? Let's go here. Let's go. It's like that Miranda in Sex in the City when the construction worker keeps like catcalling her. And she's finally just like, yeah, let's go right now. Let's do it. And then he's like, whoa, I have a wife. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm like, okay then. Shut the fuck up. Then move along.
1: Yeah. Well, at least we were ready for it. Mm. Keys in fingers. Take note, guys. Yeah. It's like a brass knuckle. It is. Yeah. No, honestly, you put your fucking keys between your fingers
0: and you get ready to punch. In your dominant hand and if they come near you, you fucking jab to the throat. That's what you do. I don't care who you are. Like you come <laughs> up to me unsuspectingly, you're getting it. <laughs> getting the key to the right. throat. As far as I can reach up, like so I'm pretty short, but you know I could also go for the balls. Touche. So, Lise, I have not one story for you and our listeners today, but two. Last week, you told the story of a missing Indigenous girl in BC, and this week, we're going to Winnipeg to talk about two of the Red River murders. 16-year-old Felicia Solomon and 15-year-old Tina Fontaine were both found murdered in the watery depths of the Red River, a whole decade apart. These were two bright, beautiful, young Indigenous girls whose voices were silenced much too soon and both failed by the systems that should have saved them. They're two really hard cases, but they are stories worth telling. Felicia and Tina didn't know
1: each other, but their stories share a similar terrifying path of young girls from First Nations communities going missing in Winnipeg and their cases left unsolved. Our country's system is designed against them. Police are failing these victims and their families. And Indigenous communities have had enough. It shouldn't take the murder of a teenager to galvanize all of Canada to finally support missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. But that's what happens in 2014. These are the cases of Tina Fontaine and Felicia Solomon. Take it away girl.
0: was March 21st, 2003, when Felicia Solomon finished the school day at R.B. Russell Collegiate High School. The 16-year-old was in grade 10, and she loved to write and tell stories. She wrote in her journal often, and would write letters with her signature sign-off of peace. Felicia spent her childhood in Norway House, which is one of the largest indigenous communities in Manitoba, and she was part of the Norway House Cree Nation. Then, Felicia moved to the big city with her mom, Matilda, to Winnipeg. So I've never been to Winnipeg, but I can imagine Felicia being really excited for this next adventure in her life. She's going from a community of 5,000 to living in a city of 750,000 people. That's a big difference. She lived with her mom just a short distance away from her school in Winnipeg's West End neighborhood. On that March day in 2003, Felicia left school with friends and was seen walking on her normal route home. She was supposed to make a stop at her boyfriend's house, but never did. And Felicia never made it home that day either. Felicia's mom, Matilda, thought it was strange not to see or hear from her daughter. She remembers that it was family allowance day. So after school, Felicia and Matilda would go grocery shopping and run errands together. Then Matilda would give Felicia an allowance to buy something just for herself. When Felicia didn't come home, Matilda became extremely worried. She phoned Winnipeg police to report her daughter missing, but they told her that they couldn't do anything until Felicia had been missing for 24 24 hours. hours. Yep. This is the same situation in the Lisa Marie Young case. Classic. So again, this like devastates me because no parent wants to wait more time, another 24 hours when their child is missing. And Felicia is 15. She's not old. The thing that
1: blows my mind is that TV show. The first, what is it called? 24 hours? The first Mm -hmm. 24? Yep. Like
0: why, why do you have to wait 24 hours now? I don't think that it's the same anymore. I mean, this is 2003. It's not that long ago, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if that's the same today so she's missing 24 hours goes by and there's still no felicia matilda called again to report her daughter missing but the winnipeg police took a whole week since felicia's disappearance to even interview matilda what? for a missing persons report a whole oh my week god just didn't show up at her house what the hell During that time, Felicia's family was fed up with the unresponsive nature of police, so they started searching for Felicia immediately, putting up homemade posters and combing Winnipeg streets for any sign of Felicia. Two months, yes, two months later, police finally declare Felicia missing to the public.
1: Whoa, 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 whoa. Two months. What was their excuse for? up until then.
0: I have no idea. How can you just
1: put someone off for two fucking months?
0: Yeah, I know. 60 days. She's missing. Could you imagine? They they don't release this information to the public at all. On May 12th, Two thousand and three, the Winnipeg police issued a press release saying Felicia was missing since April 4th, which isn't even the real date of her disappearance according to the family and that she may be a youth at risk. Like might be at risk.
1: What else just, do you think she's
0: up to? I know. And it doesn't have any, there's no urgency behind no. this case whatsoever. And I'm not sure if the police were just dismissing her as a runaway or if racial bias was involved, but if this was a 16-year-old missing blonde white girl, the response, I know and we know, it would be way different. So another two months pass, and there's still no sign of Felicia. On July 8th, Winnipeg police issued a second press release to remind the public that Felicia was still missing. But... A month prior to the second press release, a grim discovery was made in Winnipeg's Red River. On June 11th, 2003, a single arm was pulled from the waters, and two days later, on June 13th, a leg was found in the same river. Oh, God! On October 2nd, months later, police notified Matilda and the family and confirmed their worst fears. The body parts belonged to 16-year-old Felicia Solomon. I know, just an arm and a leg of this young child Why did it take so long for the DNA to come back as a match? Is that how long it takes? I don't know And honestly, there just isn't a lot of information I couldn't find any cause of death for Felicia And it is only an arm and a leg that were found in the Red River Ever The location of the rest of her body is still unknown to this day Oh my god There has been very little investigation into her disappearance and murder, and honestly, at the time, this young girl's death went completely under the radar. I couldn't find any statements from her friends on what might have happened the day she went missing. Like, Did she leave to meet someone? Who was she meeting? How did she become separated from her friends on her walk home from school? And did she ever contact her boyfriend to say that she wasn't coming by? And did she give a reason? None of that is available. Nope. Is it because it's still open? It is still unsolved for sure. But like, there's just no information on this case whatsoever. I wonder if, okay, so they found her
1: arm and a leg. Was it October? October. That's when they discovered that it was her.
0: That's when they notified the family that it was her, but they actually found the arm and leg in June. When did she go missing? She went missing on March 21st. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, so from March until June,
1: I'm just curious when a body is in water, when it decomposes, how long does it take for the body to break down so that it actually just dismembers on its own? Yeah. Did she accidentally drown? That's just what washed up and that's all they found because her body had decomposed or was she dismembered before
0: she was put into the water? So when the arm and the leg were found, police actually ruled out any accidental causes, like if she fell in or dismemberment by a boat propeller Mm -hmm. by accident. Police believe that both her arm and her leg were cut, perhaps by a handsaw or a chainsaw. The arm was cut just below the shoulder and the leg was cut above the knee joint and below the hip joint okay so they could tell by the way of the edge of the bone that it had
1: been cut and it didn't break off naturally naturally or decompose naturally okay
0: yeah and it also is believed that the body parts had been in the river for about a month interesting Mm -hmm. given the state of decomposition (sighs) so which is like makes me
1: so scared that she was held captive for two months before her body was put in the water Mm -hmm. because it had been three months since she went missing. If her bones were in the water for one month that means there's two months unaccounted for. Mm -hmm. Where was she for two months? Also
0: the public narrative around this case was really terrible. There was speculation in local media that Felicia was a sex worker living a high risk lifestyle, oh God. part of gangs or using drugs. And according to the family, like none of this was true. And she was a child, like she was 16. And again, even if it was true, that doesn't mean that police or the public should dismiss this case. Right. Like this type of narrative puts blame on felicia for getting herself killed because she was living some type of lifestyle this is very common for the numerous missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in canada and it's a really sad awful part of our country's history today 17 years later the case is completely cold and felicia's killer a monster in manitoba is walking free But Felicia isn't the only young Indigenous girl to be found murdered in Winnipeg's Red River. Could there really be a monster in Manitoba, a serial killer, targeting Indigenous girls and disposing of them in the Red River? On August 17, 2014, over a decade after Felicia's arm and leg were discovered, the body of another young Indigenous girl was found in Winnipeg's Red River. It was 15-year-old Tina Michelle Fontaine. But there was something different about this particular case. Tina, amidst the tragedy of her murder, sparked real change in the country. Her death not only brought together indigenous communities who have been understandably outraged for decades, But Tina was a catalyst for not only the province of Manitoba but the entire country of Canada to finally wake up to the injustice of the murders of Indigenous women and girls. Tina's murder was a call to action. And this is Tina's story. So Tina Fontaine was a 15-year-old Inuit and Métis girl and grew up in the Seguin First Nation community in Manitoba, just north of Winnipeg. Tina lived there with her great aunt, Thelma, and her younger sister, Sarah, for most of her life. Tina was super kind to everyone. She loved math and science, had a lot of friends, and she was protective over her younger sister. But life wasn't easy for Tina. In 2011, her dad, Eugene, was brutally murdered during a brawl in a bar where he was beaten to death. Oh, God. Despite not actually living with her dad and... Totally understanding that he wasn't capable of taking care of her, Tina had a really strong bond with him, so his death really affected Tina greatly, only 12 years old at the time when it happened. Two men were eventually convicted in Eugene's death, but Tina was suffering. Only 12, she was mentally and emotionally plagued by trauma and did not receive help to manage her grief. Despite several calls to victim services for counseling, Tina never received any, She turned inwards and she started missing classes and getting into trouble at school. So Thelma, her great aunt, decided to move Tina and Sarah to a different school and the decision actually paid off. Tina was so much happier. She found a really good group of friends and as an intelligent young girl, she started doing really well. But Tina was still missing her father. On her 15th birthday, she asked to get a tattoo on her back of her dad's name with his birth and death dates, along with angel wings. She also wanted to reconnect with her birth mother, Valentina, and her other younger siblings who lived in Winnipeg. Thelma, her primary caregiver and great-aunt, was cautious about letting Tina go. Valentina had a long history of alcoholism, drug use, and using sex work to fund her addiction. But Thelma was really worried about Tina at this point. She had started running away and rebelling from Thelma's rules. Thelma knew that this could be a good opportunity for Tina to build a relationship with her sisters in Winnipeg, who she missed and talked about all the time. And her mom, Valentina's caseworker, had reassured Thelma that she was sober at this time and living in a decent home. So Thelma agreed to let Tina and her younger sister, Sarah, visit. Okay, so there's four daughters? Yeah, so they're all daughters, and... Her younger siblings that live with her birth mother, Valentina, are from a different father. Oh, they're Mm half-sisters. Okay. And then she's with her full sister with her great aunt. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. How come they were split up? Valentina had Tina. It's kind of confusing. Yeah. So Valentina had Tina when she was really young, I think 16 years old. And her dad was a bit older, but both of them struggled with alcoholism. That was the biggest thing. And they couldn't take care of them. So Thelma is actually the aunt of her dad, Eugene. Right. Yeah. Okay. So she took them in and Thelma actually has like, she takes in a lot of kids. So she's almost like a foster parent to a lot of kids. And so you have to also imagine like she's taking care of a big family at this mm-hmm. point. It's not just Sarah and Tina, but she really really cares about them and she just wants them to be happy and successful mm-hmm. and trying to give them a good life. Mm-hmm. So the first visit was a success. Tina wanted to go again for a longer period of time. So Selma said if Tina could get her grades up, she would let her go to Winnipeg for a week after the school year ended in June. Nice. And Tina got her grades up so she was allowed to go. For safety, Thelma gave Tina $60 and a prepaid long-distance phone card. She told Tina if anything happened or if she wanted to come home sooner to just call and Thelma would come and pick her up without any issue. So she packed Tina's bags into the trunk of the car and waved goodbye as Tina's cousins drove her to Winnipeg. Little did Thelma know that would be the last time she would see Tina. In Winnipeg, Tina was not getting along with her birth mother, Valentina, and she ran away from the home really angry. Selma hadn't heard from Tina, and she became really worried, so she called Child and Family Services to locate her in Winnipeg. Child and Family Services found Tina and took her into their care. But Tina left shortly after. She ran away again... And she just started bouncing around different locations in Winnipeg for two months. Oh, wow. So she like didn't even want to come home to her aunt? Honestly, I think that she was at a point where she was suffering from a lot of trauma with her dad. And she was just... I don't know. I think she was just wanted to escape a little bit. Yeah. She wanted yeah. to escape. She was butting heads with her mom and it's not Tina's fault. She wasn't getting the help that she needed right. and she was rebelling. She really was. Mm-hmm. And I mean, she's at the prime age to do that too. Mm-hmm. You know, you're wanting to just try to live your life the way you want to live it when mm-hmm. you're 15. Mm-hmm. Like it's tough at this point as she's bouncing around different locations, she's not with her mom. She's not with child services. Tina is officially listed as a missing person, but there are still a lot of sightings of her and witnesses who spent time with her during these months before she really disappeared. Okay. So, in the days leading up to her disappearance, Tina spent a lot of time with her boyfriend, who is a Cree boy named Cody. They were drinking together one night when a man in his 50s, Raymond Cormier, rode by them on his bike. At the time, Raymond told the two kids that his name was Sebastian, but I'm going to refer to him as Raymond. Raymond gave the kids drugs and took them to different houses for parties. In early August of 2014, Cody flew back home to St. Teresa Point, and Tina was really upset about her boyfriend leaving. Like, remember, she's bouncing around different places right now. Mm -hmm. He was like a source of stability for Mm -hmm. her, and she's upset. She rode her bike to one of the houses that Raymond had taken her to before for one of those parties, and she hung out with him, but she wasn't in a good mood. Her and Raymond, who at this point she still thinks is named Sebastian, get into a fight. She's mad because she finds out that he sold her own bike for drug money, and people at the party said that Raymond was making unwanted sexual advances towards her. Oh, God. Just for context here, Raymond is in his 50s. And she's 15? Tina is 15. Ew. Like, it's just so wrong on so many levels. So Tina screams at Raymond that she's going to call the police and report a truck that he stole. And the young girl does just that. And I have the 911 call from a CBC article that I'm going to play for you now. Whoa. 22, hours eighteen minute forty one seconds.
1: Nine one one, what's the address of the emergency? Hey, um,
0: I like to report a blue truck that was stolen earlier today. Okay. And do you
1: know who stole it? This guy named Sebastian. Is it your truck? What? Is it your truck? No, um he's my friend and he stole it earlier today. Okay. You need to call the police directly at 986. Yeah. 6-triple-two. Yeah. And when you get the recorded message, press eight. That'll take you directly to a person. Okay, then. Okay. Kit. Okay. Bye. Bye. So did she end up calling
0: that other number that the operator gave her? We don't know. So I think that she probably didn't. She just wanted to get back at Raymond mm-hmm. at this point and report him she didn't even give his last name I know well she probably didn't know it and also the operator gave her that number really quickly like did she, she have time to write that I down know. I was gonna
1: say there's no way she's writing this down
0: no I wouldn't I know. remember
1: that if you told me now like I can't even remember it now just from listening to no. it no
0: and also like she's reporting a stolen vehicle to 911 and why don't they just transfer her Mm-hmm. What, do they Why get are you call making her call back? Yeah, it's very weird. After this 911 call, the next sighting of Tina is at 5 a.m. on August 8, 2014. Police pulled over a truck that morning. Tina was sitting in the passenger seat beside a man, Richard Mohammed, who picked her up after seeing her on the sidewalk and asking if she wanted to party with him. The police took Richard into custody for driving with a suspended license, but they let Tina go, completely failing to identify Tina as a missing person, even though she had been reported missing and in the database. What? They didn't ask her for her fucking name? I don't know. Like, they just completely missed this. Like, they did not know. There's no way if you plug
1: that name in that it's not going to come up as a red flag. This is a missing person.
0: Yeah. Oh my God. Like, also, it would have said if they actually did their due diligence and looked her up that she was supposed to be in the care of child and family services. Right. And that she was clearly underage. 15. With the fucking, like, I don't know how old this Richard Muhammad was, but he's not a kid. Yeah. If you're supposed to be in child services, you're not an adult. No. No, you're not. So, a few hours after she left the police station, Tina was found asleep in a parking lot and wasn't waking up. Oh, no. She was taken to a children's hospital where she was discharged into the care of a social worker who checked Tina into a hotel room in downtown Winnipeg. Tina told the social worker that she had been hanging out with a man in his 50s, Sebastian, whose real name is Raymond. Still doesn't know his real name. Nope. Who was a meth user and that he was getting her a new bike. So she told the social worker this. hmm but even with this information, Child and Family Services failed Tina. The young girl managed to leave the hotel at 5.30 p.m. saying that she wanted to meet some friends and she missed her curfew, obviously, and was reported missing by the social worker on August 9th, 2014. This is when the sightings of Tina end. At this point, she completely disappears. She's off the radar. Mm-hmm. Just over a week later, on August 17th, reports came into police of a man struggling against the current in the Red River. During their search for this man, police made another discovery the body of Tina Fontaine, wrapped inside a duvet cover and weighted down with rocks. The tattoo on her back of angel wings and her dad's name helped to identify her. Oh my God. The Red River had washed away any DNA evidence that might have been on Tina's body or the duvet. Her cause of death was stated by the pathologist as undetermined. A toxicology report stated that Tina had marijuana and alcohol in her system, but it was unlikely that this was the cause of her death. And this is all we know about how Tina died.
1: What about the man that was struggling in the river? Did they find him? They did
0: eventually find him, yes. And did they bring him him in for questioning? No, I think he was deceased. Oh. Yeah, so I think this was an unrelated thing. So okay. there were reports that he maybe had fallen off his boat and was struggling against okay. the current. So it's not
1: like he was struggling in the water because he had taken a body in there with him. No, no. Okay. Her
0: body was in there for okay. a while. The first person I would certainly look at is creepy old man pedophile Raymond Cormier. AKA Sebastian. Yeah, where you at, Sebastian? It takes police a couple of months, but on October 1st, they bring in Raymond Cormier to the station. But police don't have any evidence other than witness testimony to charge Raymond with the murder of Tina. They have to let Raymond go. But he ends up doing time for a different charge. He's released in 2015 and the police decide to put into action Project Sticks. A Mr. Big operation. Nice. So, we talked back in one of our earlier episodes, like episode two on the murder of Monica Jack, about the use of Mr. Big operations in Canada. It's highly controversial, but it has produced results. Yep. Like, what happened with the Monica Jack case, with Gary Handlin? Well, they
1: pretended that they were in this gang, mm-hmm. and the leader of this gang was like, hey, I know what you did. You need mm-hmm. to admit to it. We've got somebody who's sick that will take the fall for you. Right. But you need to tell us everything that happens and so that they can testify with the same story so that they can take that fall.
0: Yeah. So they basically try to coerce a confession. Mm-hmm. So exactly right. The police go undercover. They befriend this person. Yeah. And like in the Gary Hanlon case make him feel he like he's part of a group that deals drugs or whatever it is. And they wiretap all the conversations they have with him. Yeah. And it goes on for months. Months. And it's very expensive. Yes. So this is a route taken, this Mr. Big operation, when there is really no hard evidence linking a suspect to the crime. So the police want a confession. And at this point... In the investigation into Tina Fontaine's death, everything against Raymond is circumstantial. Right. Over six months, the Winnipeg police had undercover officers talk to Raymond and they recorded over 10,000 conversations. Whoa! I don't have the actual audio, unfortunately, but some transcripts were released of some of the things he said while talking to undercover cops. And I'm going to paraphrase some of this, but... It is essentially taken from quotes that he said. It's just a lot of his wording is quite jumbled. He's on drugs a lot of the time and not making sense. Sometimes he's just talking to himself okay, in a room with no one in there. And other times he's talking to an undercover cop who is a woman. So they did use a woman to like that he fancied essentially oh, okay. to really like get him to open up. Okay. But he does talk a lot about Tina Fontaine, and in some cases, the police said that he seems obsessed with her murder. So he says, 15-year-old girl, fuck, I drew the line and that's why she got killed. I'll make you a bet. She got killed because we found out, I found out she was 15. You ever been haunted by something? What happened there? Really, it's not right. Fuck, it's right on the shore, so what do I do? Throw her in. There was a little girl in a grave someplace screaming at the top of her lungs for me to finish the job. And I finished the job. Oh I've my god. I know. It's like, some of this stuff is wild, and this is only from just a few things that he said. He also said, I've gotten away with two murders so far. What? And three rules to crime deny, deny, deny. Oh, yeah. So in December of 2015, the Winnipeg police feel like they have enough to charge Raymond Cormier with the murder of Tina Fontaine, and they go to trial. This is a really tough trial. The Crown only has eyewitness accounts as well as the secret recordings through the Mr. Big operation. There is no forensic evidence or DNA, and Tina's cause of death was again undetermined. Right. There are no defensive wounds, no injuries, or damage to her body. There was no sign of sexual assault, stabbing, or blunt force trauma. There was also nothing to say that she drowned, either. And her body was determined to be in the Red River for three to seven days before she was found, which washed away a lot of the evidence. In court, three witnesses testified that Raymond had the exact same duvet cover that Tina was found wrapped in. And this isn't just like a white duvet cover. I was just going to say, was there a specific pattern on that? duvet? there is a pattern on that duvet. It's like purpley and like spotted and there's, we'll post a picture of the duvet on Instagram, but it's a very distinct duvet cover. Right, Okay. Witnesses also saw Tina and Raymond arguing days before she went missing, which is when she made that 911 call to police. The Crown argued that Raymond killed Tina because when he found out that she was only 15 years old, he would then be known as a pedophile. Okay,
1: so the solution is to kill her? And now you're a
0: pedophile murderer? Like I said, this is a really tough trial because I don't particularly think that this motive is the one I would go with because I don't think Raymond cares too much about being a pedophile. He does talk in some of his transcripts that he had sex with her. Like I think that he did, Mm -hmm. but I don't know. I mean, like, again, this is all through the Mr. Big operation. There's so much recordings. There's only a few things that were brought up in trial and the defense for Raymond argued that the police cherry picked certain phrases, recordings and right. phrases to make it seem like he was, was incriminating mm-hmm. yeah and he he didn't actually say he killed her in any of the recordings in my mind i know that he knows more than he says for sure and he's for sure an awful awful human being who like deserves to be in fucking jail i don't know what do you think of that as a motive I think that when drugs
1: are involved, you do really irrational things. Mm-hmm. So when she called in and reported him for stealing that truck, you don't know that maybe it could have set him off if he was high and he just went into an enraged state. A state. Yeah. And he just attacks her when she when he sees her next. Yeah. And like maybe he wasn't intending on killing her. Maybe that wasn't even the intent, but it happened. And then he didn't know what the fuck to do, so he wrapped her up and put her in the water. Like, maybe it wasn't even his intention to do that, but they ended up getting into this crazy fight. It led to that.
0: Yep. Yeah. See, I believe that more than that he was worried about being seen as a pedophile. Right. I would say that he knew that she wasn't 18.
1: Well, clearly he wasn't trying to hide that he was hitting on her. No, he hanging out were... with people. Yeah, exactly. He was doing it out in the
0: open. So it's not like he was really trying to hide that. I don't think that that's motive to kill her. I think I would believe more that he got angry with her. Yeah. And that
1: things got kind of heated and out of control. And it was kind of in the heat of the moment.
0: Mm-hmm. Ugh. So the jury deliberated for 13 hours. And they returned with a verdict. Raymond Cormier was found not guilty of the murder of Tina Fontaine. What? Yeah. Not guilty. Not guilty. And honestly, it was because the defense also argued that because the cause of death was undetermined, that there was no way to know that she didn't... It didn't happen accidentally. Why yeah, is was crazy she wrapped me. in a, a duvet? wrapped and weighted down with rocks. Like, obviously, this was intentional. Someone put her there. Yeah. Or that she died of an overdose. Like... What other, like, what the defense I think brought up is that she could have died of an overdose and this was just, they were getting rid of the body, but like, you don't know who it was. There's no DNA. Like, they just argued over and over again that there's nothing other than circumstantial evidence linking him. To prove that he actually killed her. Yeah. Oh my God. But when I read some of the transcripts of what he said, and he is totally deranged, like, he is really.
1: Well, I was going to say, did they do like a psychiatric evaluation of this guy? Like how much of this was taken out of context when it's not even presented in a full conversation? Exactly. And they're, you know, like it's like the freaking tabloids. I know. They pick and choose what people say and they twist it around to make it look a certain way.
0: Yeah, because there's also other sources that I read that said that he seemed concerned about Tina and finding her murderer in some of his conversations. Hmm. But, like, the way that the prosecution or the Crown presented it is that, like, he was obsessed with her case. And I believe that he was because he knew her. Right. And that was very top of mind for him during that time, I guess. But that's still... If you think about it, that's a year later, Mm -hmm. and he's still obsessed with it. Still talking about it. And talking about it. And I know he's probably being coerced into talking about it by the undercover cop in a way, but yeah, some of the conversations, they're just, I wish I had audio so I could hear the way he said things. The way he says things. I know. Because I feel like that would give us a better idea.
1: Right. Was he saying it out of concern or was he saying it in a way that he's kind of bragging? Right. Yeah. Like, what, what are the three rules when you're accused? Like deny, deny, deny. Like, okay, buddy. Yeah.
0: Like this guy is shady for Mm -hmm. sure, but he is a free man. Jesus. And the police have no more leads or suspects when it comes to Tina's case. And to this day it remains unsolved. But like I said earlier, Tina's murder sparked national outrage The Canadian Human Rights Commission requested a full inquiry into the number of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada. When Justin Trudeau became our Prime Minister in 2016, he announced that a national inquiry would happen on a national level. After so many years of the Canadian government under Harper denying an inquiry, denying that the numbers of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls was even an issue, this was a really big step for the country. Tina Fontaine sparked change, but her story, along with Felicia Solomon, Lisa Marie Young, Monica Jack, and Amber Tuckerow, all Indigenous girls we have covered on our podcast, are not uncommon. There have been more than 1,000 Indigenous women murdered over a span of 30 years in Canada. The homicide rate for Indigenous women in Canada is six times higher. There are so many murders and missing person cases that just completely go unsolved. But our government, even with this inquiry, still has to do better. Because where is the action? the national inquiry recommended a national task force to review unresolved cases and create a national database of all cases for missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and this has yet to happen in 2020 and personally i think this would be awesome because then i think unsolved cases cold cases would be reopened and we would have more information yeah, exactly and people would be reinterviewed witnesses would be Followed up on mm-hmm. There would be someone dedicated to these cases The RCMP In Canada is just like Really dropping the ball And has been for a lot of years Surprise, surprise yeah. So like I said There is so much left to do And these stories really deserve to be told Sometimes there isn't enough Information out there Which is why I wanted to combine two stories together this week And here's a question for you Could Raymond have killed more than one Indigenous girl and left her in the Red River, like Felicia Solomon, when he said he got away with two murders? He's in his 50s, so definitely old enough. Could he be one of the monsters in Manitoba? Sadly, with both of these cases, we are still left wondering, whose crime is it anyway?
1: Thanks for listening to another episode of Whose Crime Is It Anyway. We'll be back next week with a brand new case. And also you can follow us on Instagram at Whose Crime Podcast and we're on Twitter at Whose Crime Pod. And if you really like this episode, share it with a friend. Bye. Toodles. When just a few weeks ago I was staying up north in a cabin up in Lac Lahash, but it was mm-hmm. on a farm stay. So there's animals everywhere, but it's just on a mm-hmm. lake and super, super quiet. So there's no one else around. And at one point in the middle of the night, it was like three in the morning. I could hear screaming. What was it? Was it, it an animal? It honestly sounded like a woman screaming oh from my across God. the fucking lake. And Ooh. I literally laid in bed for like 15 minutes listening. And I'm like, oh my God, like some, a woman is being attacked. And I'm like, and I, like I was getting ready to like get, get, up and like mm-hmm. go and try and do something and then i started listening a little bit harder it was like <laughs> right oh, no. it <laughs> so a horse? i think it was either a horse or a donkey so. <laughs> but i'm on alert i hear a fucking scream yeah and i'm like what alert. can i do to help